may be seated. It's such a joy for me to look out and see some young children here this morning on Father's Day. It reminds me of my first Father's Day preaching. I can say this because Amelia is not here, my oldest. But uh, on the first Father's Day that I was preaching at a small church doing pulpit supply, I got up into the pulpit and little, uh, I guess she must have been 23 months old, almost a two years old, Amelia stood up in the back, pointed as I got up in the pulpit and said, that's my daddy. (laughs) Made me feel very proud on Father's Day. But she's not here this morning, so she's not going to do that. But we are so happy to have young families here, and that means that there might be a little chatter, a little movement. Families do not feel bad about that. We love that your children are here. Now, if you would, open up your Bibles to Psalm 119. This morning, we are going to finish up our study of Psalm 119 with our uh, study of meditation through what this psalm teaches us. Last week, we talked about how meditation on God's Word should change what we think and what we feel. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how meditation on the Word of God should change what we do, how we act, and then spend the rest of the time going through some examples of what that might look like. Leland Riken called them worldly saints. It's a name that might not fit your perception of the Puritans. You see, ever since the rise of Puritanism in 17th century England, the Puritans have been misunderstood. They've been ridiculed. They are remembered as dour-faced, stick-in-the-mud killjoys who wore black and were so intent on razor-sharp theological precision that they lacked any charity or understanding. Today, they're remembered as puritanical. They're the reason that Americans are more prudish than our European counterparts. They seem to be anything but worldly. They're remembered as religious fanatics that the world may be better off without. And yet, over the last several decades, many have begun rediscovering these men and women and have come to see that in reality, the Puritans were men and women who loved God and sought godliness in all areas of life. As Joel Beakey has written, the distinctive character of Puritanism was its quest for a life reformed by the Word of God. The Puritans were committed to search the Scriptures and then to apply them in all areas of life. The Puritans are our forefathers in the faith. They are the pilgrims who came to the shore of America that they might practice their faith and freedom. They are the saints who emphasize personal conversion and gave rise to our evangelical heritage. They are the ones who gave us clear definitions of the Reformed faith in the Westminster Confession. As American evangelical Presbyterian Christians, you have more to owe to the Puritans for the way that you live and the way that you believe than any other religious or political movement of the past 400 years. And central to that movement, as we have already stated, was a quest for all areas of life to be reformed, to be changed by the Word of God. Puritanism was a movement to do what God commanded and to live for God's glory. 
The Puritans were saints because they sought holiness through the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and yet they were worldly because their holiness was not regulated to the space between church walls, but it broke out into all areas of life. As we continue our study of Christian meditation in Psalm 119, we will find that if we are obedient to the practice of meditation, it will lead us to be worldly saints. That is, it will lead us on a quest to do what God commands in all areas of our life. What I want you to come away with this morning is an understanding of how meditation on the Word of God will lead to obedience to the Word of God. I want you to see how meditation can work as the sledgehammer that will destroy the wall that we have falsely established between our beliefs and our actions. So hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 119. We'll read verses 145 to the end of the psalm. This is God's holy word for us, his people. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. 
I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you this morning and we do pray that you would teach us how we might fix our attention upon your word in such a way that it would change our lives. Lord, we desire to be like our forefathers in the faith, that we would not just practice our religion in a private manner, Lord, within the walls of the church or within, Lord, a secret chamber within our home but that it would burst forth into all areas of our lives. We pray this for your honor and your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. The quadratic equation is something that most of us had to learn at some point in our schooling. It is used in the graphing of parabolas or arcs. And for many years, I had the quadratic equation memorized. I had a little song that I used to sing. I won't sing it here, but it kept in my mind the quadratic equation. X equals negative B plus or minus square root of the quantity B squared minus 4AC all over 2B. I did have to glance a little bit there. And I have no idea what to do with that. At some point, I'm sure I knew what to do with it because I passed eighth eighth grade math. But now I have no clue. But somebody does know what to do with it because it's how lenses for glasses are crafted and measured. It's how we make arcs for bridges. It's how we understand the flight pattern of an arrow or a bullet. It's how we measure the deceleration speed of a car. And all of these things are rather important. They have effects on our lives. And here's the point. Just because I have the quadratic equation rolling around in my mind, more or less, it doesn't mean I can do anything with it. And when we come to the word of God, we must realize that just because we have the truths of God's word rolling around in our heads, it doesn't mean we actually know what to do with them. And in a very real sense, if you do not know how to take the word of God from a theoretical knowledge to a practical knowledge, then you don't truly understand God's word at all. For all of God's word is to be practiced. Listen to a handful of verses that occur throughout Psalm 119 that exemplify the call to do or to practice God's word. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? Why would somebody store up God's word in their heart? That I might not sin against you. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Why Why does he want to learn the Lord's statutes? For I will keep them to the end. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. You see, we must not just know God's word, but we must keep, we must do God's word. And meditation, that is fixing our attention on God's word with reliance upon the Holy Spirit, is what moves us from theoretical knowledge to practical knowledge. 
It is what takes us from being hearers of God's word to being doers of God's word. Because in meditation, you diligently seek to understand how the truth of God's word is to be lived out in your life. Listen to this connection that's made in verse 100 of Psalm 119. Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged for I keep your precepts. You see, the path to understanding is meditation and understanding is displayed not in being able to read back a list of laws, but rather the superior understanding of the psalmist is displayed in the fact that he keeps the precepts of the Lord. That is, he is shown to be wise because he does what God has commanded him to do. And this is the very practice that is commanded to Joshua as he begins the ministry of leading the people of God. He is instructed in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Right, Joshua, you're about to lead the people of Israel to in the conquest to take the land of Canaan. You must meditate on the word, the law of God day and night. Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You see, there is a false dichotomy that has been propagated within Christian circles between thoughtfulness and action. There is an idea that those who spend much time meditating and pondering God's word, that they will be paralyzed into inaction, living in towers of ivory, never coming down to interact with the real world. However... It is not those who meditate on God's word who are paralyzed by inaction, but rather those who have no time for God's word. Those who are too busy to meditate are also those who are too busy to act. For men and women of action must first be men and women of meditation. Now, that we have seen the connection between What we think, how we meditate on God's word will lead to action. I want to give a handful example, handful of examples of how this works. Because we all have a difficult time understanding how we take the word of God and begin applying it to our lives. Like the quadratic equation, you can memorize it rather quickly. But if you're asked to graph the flight pattern of an arrow, you would have no idea how to use it. And again, it's my hope that you will see that meditation will be that bridge that will take you from knowing to doing. What we're going to do is we're going to look at four different types of knowledge that we receive from God's word. You can see that in your outline And then we're going to demonstrate how each through a process of meditation that is through pondering, thinking deeply on God's word will lead to changed behavior. So I'll begin with maybe the most difficult aspect of scripture to apply. What we might call theological statements. The Bible makes theological statements throughout And one of the most basic theological statements of the Christian faith is that God is spirit. John chapter 4 says God is spirit. 
Very straightforward, very clear. A theological statement about the being of God. The children's catechism asks, what is God? And children memorize, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the same question, what is God? And it gives a little bit more extended answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's a theological statement. That is a truth that God's Word teaches us. It tells us of the nature of God. But how do we take that truth And do something with it. How do we become doers of the truth that God is spirit? Well, listen to Jesus' statement again in John chapter 4, in which this theological truth is stated. Jesus says, God is spirit. Again, he's making a theological statement. He's saying that the essence and nature of God is spirit. But then he continues... And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, the theological truth that God is spirit means that we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that has huge implications on the way that you worship God. For He is not to be worshipped according to the inventions of man, but He is to be worshipped according to His Word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It means that we must follow the Spirit's divine direction given to us in the Word of God as we gather together to worship. In particular, it means that we are not to worship God according to any images, any pictures of God, for He is a Spirit. And to worship Him through an image is to deny His nature. It also means that we must worship Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't come in and worship according to our own power and our own desire. And so that theological truth that God is spirit changes the way that we worship. But this theological truth also means that our whole life is to be a sacrifice of praise to God. This is Paul's point in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, the spiritual nature of God means that we are to present our whole lives as a spiritual sacrifice to God. When we meditate on the spiritual nature of God, It should cause us to realize that because God is spirit, that all aspects of our lives, everything that we do is to be done to the worship and the glory of God alone. And so when you read theological truths in Scripture, you need to take time to meditate on them, think through them, and by His Word and Spirit, the Lord will show you How to obey. The next category of scriptural truth that we might apply is what we would call redemptive acts of God in history. Much of the Bible contains, consists of historical accounts, and in particular, historical accounts of God's saving acts. For example, the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, you have the historical account of how the Lord delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. 
And this historical redemptive act should bring about obedience. You read this history, you think, how, how do I apply the history of the Exodus? Well, the Lord gives us direction in His Word. For the opening words of the Ten Commandments say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see this historical redemptive act as we meditate on it, as we think about it, as we go to God's word, according to what happened there, we realize that we are called to obey the Lord. Now, the most significant historical act is the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we have four gospels retelling these events. We need to read and we need to meditate on what Christ has accomplished. And then we need to obey the gospel. But how do you obey something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How does that change what we do? Well, again, when we meditate, we fix our attention on God's word. We don't try to find our own answers. We fix our attention. We ponder. We think we go to God's word. And in Colossians 3, we read, If then you have been raised with Christ, think the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see how Paul moved from the redemptive fact of Christ's life, death, and resurrection and ascension to our obedience to putting to death what is earthly within us? For since Christ has died, we must die to earthly passions. And since Christ has been risen and is in heaven, we should live a heavenly life. Meditation on the gospel should lead us to think, feel, and act differently. It should cause us to repent of our sin, to place our faith in the death of Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. To trust in the resurrection of Christ is the proof that we have been united with Him and in faith been given new life. You see, if we just know about Christ's life but never meditate on its implications, then we will never live in the power of a resurrected life, a life hidden in Christ. What do you do with the redemptive event of Christ's resurrection? You repent, you believe, you fight sin, you grow in holiness, and you proclaim it to others that others might be saved. You see, you might have read that Christ lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, rose from the dead, and is now at the right hand of power. You might have professed that truth each and every Sunday. But if that truth has not brought new life, then you don't truly know it. If that truth doesn't cause change and doesn't cause you to begin to live differently, then you don't understand and you have not obeyed the gospel. And if you have never shared the good news, if you have never shared this with your family and with your friends, even with your enemies, then you do not obey the gospel 
in which we are called to tell others. For you need to meditate on the Gospels, praying that by the Holy Spirit, your eyes would be opened to love Christ and to obey Him. Third, a third category of scriptural truth is the example of other biblical characters. Now, we need to be careful with this one because it is common for people to see the Bible as a book of examples and that the way to salvation is through emulating the good behavior of other people. But as we have just said, the only way to salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, God's word tells us that we should look to the example of others to see how we are to live out our faith. For example, we are instructed in the Bible, in Galatians chapter 3, to emulate the faith of Abraham. Paul explains that it is by faith that Abraham was accepted as righteous before God, just as we are to exercise faith. Abraham did a lot of things that we should not emulate. You read the story of his life, there's a lot of things in there that you would say, yeah, not a good guy to follow. But Abraham was a man of great faith. And Abraham exercised that faith by obeying God. And we should have such faith as Abraham. We should seek to be men who love God like David. We should seek to be women who are faithful like Ruth. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Samson, Hannah, Samuel, Daniel, Esther, they are all people of whom God has put before us in His Word that we might seek to follow their example by meditating on their lives. Not as perfect examples, not as salvific examples, but examples nonetheless. For as we focus our attention on the lives of God's people through history, It should help us to learn how to live out our faith in the world. It should teach us what to do. The final category of Scripture that I'm going to cover this morning is the law. Right? Theological truth, historical events, examples of people's lives, and now the law. And while we know that the law does not give us salvation, we also understand that it is a positive guide for the Christian life. God's law is a statement of his will for how we are to love one another. And so we need to spend time meditating on the law of God in a consistent and systematic fashion with an aim of understanding what it is calling us to do. What do I mean by that? Well, we can see this by example. We learn the Ten Commandments. Why? So that we will obey the Ten Commandments. Several years ago, I heard a debate about a public school saying they needed to take down the Ten Commandments. And a school board member, in defense of taking down the Ten Commandments, said, we don't want the students thinking that they have to obey those. And in like fashion... Sometimes we read the Ten Commandments and we think, I don't know if I need to obey those. But God calls us to obey. You see, like that silly quadratic equation, if they are not done, then it's no, there's no point in learning them. So let us take the command, you shall not murder. Now, we understand with a quick reading, that means that we should not kill someone. 
And yet it means so much more than that as we meditate on it according to God's word. For the Lord Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, the command not to murder lays a much greater obligation upon us than just restraining ourselves from killing other people. And we need to take time to meditate upon this command and to bring our lives under the light of it. We need to see that the law is not understood and is not obeyed unless we live out all the obligations of the law. When we meditate on the law not to murder, it should cause us to be mindful of the lives of others and how we think of them, how we treat them, how we speak to them. And on a regular basis, we should be meditating on the law, seeking God's wisdom and how to specifically do what he commands. A diligent meditation on the commandment not to murder will give us great insight in how we deal with issues like racism we will see that we cannot merely refrain from outward acts of violence toward other races, but rather we need to be concerned for and defend the life and dignity of all people. We will see that even coarse joking, our prejudicial language, our thoughts, harboring within our own mind thoughts, you fool, will make us liable to judgment. A meditation on the law of God will instruct us on how we should not just tolerate other ethnicities, but as a Christian, we are called to be filled with a deep love for all peoples and desire them to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And a deep meditation on the law of God and on our obligation to follow it should also lead us to a revelation of our great inability to keep the law. Our inability to fulfill it as it is to be fulfilled. And it should reveal to us our sin and our need for Christ. A meditation on the law of God should lead us to Jesus Christ, the only one who has completely, perfectly fulfilled the law. Now I'm sure you've heard the phrase, That man is so heavenly minded, he is no earthly good. And now I understand what it's trying to communicate, yet I think that there is a fundamental mistake in the logic. You see, we need to be heavenly minded if we are going to be earthly good. Why? Because the road from knowing to doing is to set our minds on the things that are above. The Puritans received the name Puritan because they were seeking to purify the worship of the Church of England. They believed it was not according to the truth of God's word. And since God was spirit, it was their obligation to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not according to human invention and ingenuity, but according to his word. This belief led many to establish or to leave the established church rather to undergo persecution, to sail across the Atlantic Ocean and to establish a new country in which they could obey the Lord. As Puritan John Winthrop said, to be a city on a hill. 
Puritans were worldly saints because their holiness did not stay within the side, the walls of the church, but it went into all areas of the world. They sought not just to read about their faith, but to do it. And we should thank the Lord that they were willing to let their light shine, that they were willing to be the salt of the earth. Christian. We must learn from their example, for we cannot just be hearers of God's word, but we must be doers of God's word. And to be doers, we must take that sledgehammer of meditation and break down the wall between theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge. For the theoretical knowledge is at a standstill, but practical knowledge bursts forth into the world, ever advancing, ever going forward. No one has benefited from my knowledge of the quadratic equation, not once. But those who apply it to everyday life, we've all benefited. Our nation right now needs Christians who are mindfully meditating on how God's word should change what they think, what they feel and what they do. You might have a lot of biblical truth in your mind, but if you do nothing with it, then your faith is dead. For you must break down that wall that separates your knowing from your doing and begin to live out your faith as a worldly saint. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, Father God, we come to you now at this time and we pray simply that you would guide us to set aside time Not just to read your word, but to meditate on its implication for our lives, for our worship, for our witness, for the way that we love our families and the way that we love our enemies. We pray, O God, that you would change us. That we might put to death that which is earthly within us and we might live unto Christ as new creations. We pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen.